Well, good morning. I always enjoy this time of celebrating our Savior's first coming. And it's fun to do it in the midst of a text, as we've been looking at Matthew 24 and still there and into 25, that looks ahead to His second coming. As we continue to sing and to say, Come thou long-expected Jesus. Well, in 1 Chronicles, don't worry, you don't have to turn there unless you want to. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we are given a list of soldiers who come from various tribes of Israel who joined David at Hebron after the death of Saul. In verse 32 of 1 Chronicles 12, we read about men from the tribe of Issachar. But unlike all the other groups that were named and that were called out, many for their might, for their valor, for their deeds of excellence, deeds of strength. No such description is given for the men of Issachar. Instead, they get another description, a rather unique one. We read in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, of the men of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Now, I don't want to press this somewhat small editorial comment too far, but it fascinates me that the Holy Spirit moved the chronicler to record this small bit of information. At a minimum, it highlights the value of understanding the times, that is, having discernment and an awareness. Even more than that, notice how having discernment and understanding of the times translates in knowing how to act. In their case, their understanding and discernment of the times led to knowing what Israel should do. Interestingly, the men of Issachar lived in a time between kings. The rightful king had been anointed, but his rule and kingdom was not yet manifest. It's really not too difficult to see similarities, not sameness, but similarities for the New Testament believer. Paul says in Romans 13, 11 through 14, and he puts it this way, Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. In another exhortation, Paul writes to Titus and the believers in Crete, saying, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Well, we too live in a time between times, a time of anticipation where we look forward to the full manifestation and revelation of the glory and the kingdom of God. And the question for us this morning as we turn our attention to Matthew 24 is this, do you understand the times? And does understanding translate into right behavior? Read along with me if you would, if you haven't already turned there to Matthew chapter 4. And 
We'll pick up where we left off in verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning asking for your spirit to guide us in our study and in our understanding. I thank you for the promise that you've given that, Father, you not only do not leave us or forsake us, but that when you went away, you gave us the helper. Thank you for your spirit who helps to guide us, to convict us of sin. Father, we do long for and want to together anticipate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we celebrate this season, that first coming, looking back to the good news of salvation that was brought to all men, Father, we look forward to the day when the glory of your kingdom is made manifest. In the meantime, help us to be faithful. Help us to be good stewards. Help us to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, last week we took some time in Matthew 24, 15 through 28, and we discussed why it is most likely that it speaks to a future desolation and great tribulation, one that it comes at the end of this age in verses 15 through 21. We then observed the repeated warning to the disciples to not be deceived or misled. And Jesus closed in the verses leading up to our text this morning by telling the disciples that his coming would be obvious, it would be unmistakable. It would be as obvious as lightning which lights up the entire sky from east to west. You can't miss it. We also took some time to compare Matthew 24 to Luke 21, noting a slight difference in emphasis between Matthew and Luke where Luke only records the disciples asking about the destruction of the temple in this Olivet Discourse. Matthew records a question about the temple, saying, when will these things happen in verse 3? But then he records two additional questions by the disciples concerning Christ's glorious return in the end of the age. And Matthew notes Jesus' answers to those questions with an emphasis on his return in the end of the age. Now, before we jump into verses 29 through 35, take a step back with me, if you would, and I want you to ask, and we'll try to answer this question. 
What is Jesus trying to accomplish when he is speaking to the disciples and answering their questions? What is Jesus doing here? Maybe we can answer it this way. I'm going to start with the children. When your parents talk to you, what are they usually trying to do? When they answer your questions, when they speak to you, it's usually purposeful, isn't it? They're trying to teach you, often in small ways, sometimes in big ways. It's purposeful. They're trying to guide you. They're trying to train you. But what are they trying to train you for? You ever wonder that? They're trying to train you for life. They want you to be prepared for life that is to come. Everything from the chores they might have you do to how they instruct you in treating others in terms of how you respond when treated poorly by others or when things don't go your way. All of this is training you, preparing you for life. As moms and dads, we know life is really hard. And we want, as much as possible, to minimize, we can't get rid of, but minimize the pain and difficulty of this life. And that's similar to what Jesus is doing here. He's preparing the disciples. He's preparing disciples for living in a world full of trial, tribulation, and persecution once he departs. For this time before his return. We see Jesus' desire to prepare the disciples in that high priestly prayer of John 17 where he prays to the Father on the disciples' behalf because he knows things are going to get difficult. Jesus has told us what is coming in Matthew 10, verses 16 through 17. And here in 24, 4 through 14, he wants his disciples ready. And in this passage, there's really three things Jesus does to get his disciples ready. One, he gives them hope. He tells them what the coming of the Son of Man will look like. Secondly, to prepare them, he reminds them that they need to be discerning. And thirdly, he comforts them with the assurance and the permanency of his promises and his word. The first of that, the hope, the appearing of the Son of Man is there in verses 29 through 31. We left off last week with verses 27 through 28. But now Jesus not only tells those who believe in him not to be misled, he now explains why they should not be misled. It's not simply don't be misled. You should be, not be misled. There's really no excuse, and let me tell you why. My return will be incredibly obvious. The coming of the Son of Man will be awesome. We pick up in some of those details in these verses. It takes place after the tribulation of those days. This is a reference to the great tribulation of verse 21. Notice the reference to those days, that far demonstrative, those to push the timing into the future. It avoids confusion with the tribulation and trials described in verses 4 through 14. Note, too, that it's accompanied by cosmic signs. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from the sky. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Not only will the coming of Christ be obvious, it will be awesome in its power and the upheaval it brings to the created order. Thirdly, it's accompanied by heavenly beings with trumpets. It's going to be pretty hard to miss angels with trumpets. It's going to give a whole new meaning to angels we have heard on high. 
He will gather together his elect from across the world. There will be believers throughout the world because as we saw in verse 14, the gospel will be proclaimed to all the nations. This will be a time of great rejoicing for the believer. It is the hope and anticipation that Paul spoke of in Titus 2 and we already read. Nothing could or should be more exciting, more hoped for, more longed for than the return of Jesus Christ. When Nancy, Grady's wife, was out of town a few weeks ago. All you had to look, do is look at Grady to know he missed her. I remember Sunday when she was coming home, Grady wouldn't even consider lunch because he wanted to be at home waiting for her. Why? Because he loves her. He missed her. He wanted to be with her. If we understand the times, if we believe Christ will return, our excitement and our anticipation will be far greater than Grady's. And we build that type of excitement and that type of anticipation by deepening our love for God and love for Christ. Spend time in his word. Spend time praying to him. Spend time with his people. Those things will help you to cultivate a greater love for him and a greater eagerness for his return and to be with him. I skipped over it, but there was one more noticeable feature about the coming of Christ in verse 30, isn't there? Notice that there is a different response for much of the world. They mourn. You know, it's interesting. Growing up, I usually couldn't wait for my dad to get home from work, would run to the car to meet him or to greet him when he would come home. But there were those times... It only happened once or twice, I'm sure, where I had been disobedient. And I had heard those ominous words spoken by my mom, the foretold prophecy, your father will deal with you when he gets home. Those days, I wasn't nearly as excited for him to come home. I dreaded it. And Revelation tells us why the people of the earth mourn. They mourn because the wrath of God is coming upon them. And the wrath of God is final, and it is terrible. The same appearing of God that is rejoicing for the disciple is terror for the one who is not repented of their sin, who does not love God. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 6. I'm not going to comment on this passage. I just want to read it to give an impression and leave an impression upon your minds of how terrible this coming is for those who do not love Christ, who do not love God, who have not repented of their sins. Beginning in verse 13. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich men, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? 
If you are here this morning and are fearful of God's return, fearful of the judgment because you know that is what you deserve because of your sin and your disobedience, that's the bad news, but I have wonderful news for you. You do not have to dread. You do not have to be afraid. If you will call out to God to forgive you of your sins, if you will put your trust in Jesus Christ as the one who took the punishment of your sins on himself when he died on the cross, then you will be saved from the wrath to come. And your citizenship will be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. And that forgiveness of sin becomes the foundation for a love that will continue to increase and grow. If that's your desire, do not wait. Do not delay. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what this afternoon holds in store. If you need to speak to someone, find myself. I'm one of the men who served communion, one of those who greeted you, the person sitting next to you. We would love to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Well, there's a transition that takes place in verse 32. And these verses, verses 32 through 34, are quite frankly some of the most debated and difficult verses to interpret in the Bible. In all the commentaries I read, which was well over a dozen not a single commentary interpreted these verses exactly the same. There were a few similarities on some of them, but there were a lot of differences. And so before I attempt to provide you with my understanding of this passage, I want to answer a question that might be teasing around in your mind that I was reminded of by someone yesterday. If it's this hard, then why bother? If good and godly men disagree, then why bother studying hard texts? Well, first off, I want to start with the proposition, the thesis, that it is good to study hard passages of Scripture. This section of Scripture is not easy to study. It is hard. It can be very tempting to just give up and adopt the, quote-unquote, pantheism of others. It'll just all pan out in the end. And perhaps you just decide you don't want to have an opinion, or maybe you'll just rely on someone else and what they tell you to believe. Now, I'm all for reading what others have to say, engaging with others, learning from others. But understand this. God gave his word to you and to me. I'm going to borrow an illustration that a rabbi once made with regard to translating scriptures, applied to the interpretation of the Bible. Studying scripture by reading or listening to others without attempting to study it yourself is like kissing your bride through the veil. Something's in the way. Before you go and read what others have to say or rely on them for their opinions, study it for yourself. Pray over it. Hard does not mean bad. Some of the best things in life come through hard work and diligence. Like I said, I've read over this text dozens of times. I've done semantic analysis, comparisons, word studies. I've looked at a dozen different translations. I've done my own translations. It's been hard work. And if I were completely honest with you, there are times where it would have been a lot easier just to skip over this whole section and go get some extra sleep. 
to top it all off, it's a section of Scripture that's not only hard, but it's often divisive. Having said all that, I have learned so much, even unrelated to this specific text. Things that, sorry, you don't get to hear this morning. And while I may not understand everything perfectly, in fact, I know I don't, we won't put any clause around that, I understand it so much better than before, and I have a much greater appreciation for what God is doing and what he has promised. Remember, God has provided all of Scripture, not just the easy parts, for our benefit. The Spirit says in 2 Timothy 3.16, through Paul, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man, the woman of God, may be adequate and equipped for every good work. It is well worth it to take the time to study God's Word for yourself. And I hope you're doing that. And if you really don't even know where to start, join a small group or a Bible study. We have several resources on our church website, including a link to a video series on learning how to study the Bible for yourselves. Do it. Begin that practice. And if you're already doing it, excel still more. Well, Jesus prepares the disciples next by encouraging them to recognize the times. Look at verses 32 through 34. We'll start with the parable there in verse 32. Now, you may have already picked up on this. You've, we've been in Matthew for quite some time, and not all parables are alike. In fact, there's different illustrations that seem to be used under the title parable, and it's a great observation because the term parable, our English word, is a little more limited than the Greek term parable. The term that is translated into parable, which also sounds a lot like parable in the Greek, parabole, can describe stories, illustrations, metaphors, analogies. And here, this parable, when it's a short, it's used as a metaphor. It's calling on the disciple, the follower of Christ, to be discerning, to pay attention to the times. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives, probably staying at Bethany or Bethpage, as we saw in chapter 21. You may remember Bethpage means house of the early fig. They were likely numerous fig trees nearby, and we know at least one of them had started to put out its leaves. Remember, Jesus cursed it back in chapter 21 because it put out leaves but had no fruit, no early buds. And Jesus cursed it as an illustration of the false and empty promises of religious leaders who pretended to be fruitful but had no real fruit. Well, when the fig tree begins to put out its leaves, as the illustration goes, you know summer is near. This is actually a really good tree to use for an illustration because a fig tree buds later in the spring. So if there's any chance of a late frost, you're usually past that. If the fig tree is blossoming, it is going to get warmer. Summer is close. So Jesus says in verse 33, When you see all these things, recognize that something is near at the door. You probably noticed that I said something, not he is at the door. There is a possibility it could be he, but that's an interpretational decision. It's not a strict grammatical translation. This is going to get technical for just a minute. I won't keep us in the weeds too long. But we have the third person singular subject there implied in the word is. So 
It could be he, she, or it is. It's really not that complicated. It's used all throughout Greek. We have similar types of words in English where you have to look at the context to determine the implied subject. And you look at the context and to determine what the referent is, who is the he, she, or it. And the most common contextual clue is the nearest, what's called antecedent. That is the nearest preceding term with the same grammatical markers. It's third, it's singular third person and singular. In this case, the nearest preceding third singular subject is the word summer. Because it's used in a parable, summer, though, is representative of someone or something. So we're left asking, what is that something? Many of our Bible translations go ahead and supply the he there because of the earlier description of the coming of Christ. And I'll start by saying that is a legitimate option. But as we've already identified, Jesus is answering two primary questions in Matthew 24. When will the temple be destroyed? And then with a greater emphasis throughout 24 and 25, what will be the signs of his return? Now verses 4 through 14, as I've understood them and as we've discussed over the past few weeks, lay the expectation for the disciple of Jesus Christ. Life is going to be filled with deception, trials, and tribulations. Do not be confused. Do not be misled into thinking he has returned. These are merely the birth pains. It will be self-evident, as we already saw this morning. Then Jesus turns to the future, as we saw last week in verses 15 through 22. He then cuts back in verses 23 through 26 to a time before the end of the age. Again, warning disciples against being misled or deceived. Then in verses 27 through 31, Jesus again speaks about the end of the age and the awesome and obvious nature of his return that we've just looked at. But in all of this, notice that he has not yet answered the disciples' question from verse 3. Now, he's not obligated to answer it. I'll start there. He's Jesus. But he has not yet answered their question from verse 3 regarding the temple where Matthew notes them asking, when will these things happen? Did you notice the language used in verse 3? Notice that in verses 33 and through 34, we also see the term, these things. See, I believe there's a verbal link back to the question the disciples asked about the destruction of Jerusalem, and that's what Jesus is answering in these three verses. And Jesus is doing it to set up a contrast here with what he's going to say, and I went ahead and read it in verse 36. In other words, even though you cannot know, no one can know when the sun will return or when the end of the age will come, you can know when Jerusalem is about to be destroyed and left desolate. There's another reason I think verses 33 and 34 are connected with the destruction of Jerusalem. If you look back at chapter 23, verse 36, I know it was six or seven weeks ago. But in chapter 23, verse 36, you read... Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And we see it in reference to the destruction of Jerusalem and down in verse 38, the desolation that is coming upon the temple. In addition, you saw another word that's repeated, generation. This may be one of, if not the single most debated term in all of Matthew. 
We find the phrase, this generation, used in both 2336 and again in our text this morning, 2434. There are ten other verses, or actually ten verses total, nine other, eight other if you count 2336, where in Matthew where the phrase generation is used. And apart from the genealogy list of Matthew 1.17, which is a very obvious context, every single reference to generation in the book of Matthew is to the contemporary Jewish generation who is described as wicked, crooked, and perverse. When you expand that analysis to the rest of the Gospels, you find the same thing with all singular usages of this term. In fact, you have to look to the Old Testament usages and the Greek translation of the Psalms to find any place it is used in a broader sense. Now, there are godly men and women who interpret this differently, but I feel that I am straining too hard against the text, trying to make it say something that it doesn't say to try and make it anything other than the Jewish unbelieving generation Jesus has been addressing throughout his ministry. And so I believe that the best interpretation of verse 34 is that the all these things are the same all these things of 2336. And that these things of 24 verse 3 that the disciples asked about, namely the destruction of the temple, leaving it desolate and the horror that would come upon Jerusalem. And Jesus says it will take place with this generation. He provides a time reference for them just like they asked for in verse 3. But while he is answering their question about these things, he immediately sets up a contrast. And that contrast begins by starting with heaven and earth will pass away. In other words, he takes us from that near event of the destruction of Jerusalem immediately back to the end times, where his emphasis is, or at least the emphasis that Matthew draws out from this, from this Olivet Discourse, to the end of the age, when heaven and earth pass away. And he says that that time, according to verse 36, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. We'll deal with the difficulties in that verse later, not today. Though we cannot know when, he also provides an assurance for us that even though heaven and earth will pass away, even though the end will come, his words, his promises will stand forever. And so in the midst of this non-answer to their question of when will the end of the age come, the other when question back in verse 3, Jesus refuses to give them a time. So refuse may be the wrong word. He says you can't know the time. Jesus provides great comfort and assurance while living in this in-between time. And the assurance is in his words. This prepares him for this time. Look at verse 35 in the last few minutes that we have. And note the phrase, my words will not pass away. I'm reminded immediately of the prophet Isaiah. He said in Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Why is this phrase so reassuring and why was it so important for Jesus to speak it here? Well, one, it speaks to the unchanging nature of God. 
Hebrews 13.8 reminds us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Secondly, it gives us confidence that everything he has said will come to pass. It will be reinforced by these near events, but we will anticipate those far events. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Peter addressed the mockers who were beginning to arise in 2 Peter 3. The whole chapter is worth reading, but for the sake of time, if you want to go and turn there to 2 Peter chapter 3. Take a right from Matthew. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We won't do it this morning, but you can look back at the beginning of 2 Peter 3 and, and see the reminder to remember the words of the Lord. Remember them because they are true. They are yes and amen. What God has promised, what Christ describes and begins to unveil here in Matthew 24, what we are going to see through the end of 24 and into 25 about the age to come, the end of this age and the age to come, are sure they stand. It's a promise you can take to the bank. I've covered a lot this morning. Some of you probably have questions for me afterward. But I want to conclude by asking those two questions we started with. Do you understand the times? Do you understand why there are tribulations and trials now? Do you understand that Christ is coming back? Do you understand this in-between time? Do you understand that the world will hate you because it hated him? Do you understand that his return will be obvious so you should not be misled? And so second question is, how does your understanding of the times impact your behavior? Does it make a difference in your life? Do you live differently because of your understanding of Scripture? Specifically here, your understanding of Matthew 24. Does your study of Scripture have an impact on what you do and how you behave and how you think and how you speak to others and what you say to others and how you proclaim the gospel, how you mourn over the loss, how you pray, how you spend your time? Do you live differently because of your understanding of Scripture? Do you look different than the world around you? 
probably a gradient to the answer on many of those questions. Sometimes I don't look different enough than the world around me, right? Sometimes it doesn't affect me the way it should. Sometimes I just flat out refuse to live differently in light of what I know. That's where we come and we ask for forgiveness. John tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His mercies are renewed to us each and every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for hard texts. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this in-between time and how we are to be living. That we would live with an expectation and a longing, with an eye toward heaven, and that that eye toward heaven, that excitement and anticipation would impact, it would motivate, it would shape our lives that we would be good and faithful servants of you. That we would, as Paul writes to Titus and the believers in Crete, be zealous for good deeds. Let us be busy about those things. Father, help us to grow in our love for you and to do the work of cultivating that relationship and deepening our love for you. We thank you that you first loved us. That's the only reason we can even begin